All right, let's celebrate our kids. All right. They had a, had a great time at CIY, and man, Ben, you have got the moves, buddy. I am impressed. You can, you can cut a rug, well, whatever that means. You can do those kind of things. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you so much for the support that you give to our youth group and allowing our kids to go. It's a life-changing event, and I know they're blessed by going. So thank you so much for that support there. Uh, yesterday was um, a special day in our life. It was, uh, it was my anniversary, and uh, the amazing thing, it was also Deb's anniversary on the same day. We are so happy that we're able to do that together on the same day. This makes life so much easier. I have learned after 40, uh, 46 years in ministry, Things aren't always what they seem to be, and people aren't always who, whom they appear to be. Uh, about a month ago, I got a call into the office, and, and it was a lady that called in, said she lived over in Mulberry Grove, and, and she called in to say that she wanted to find out more about First Christian Church, wanted to know how she could get involved in ministries here. So the call was forwarded to me. Belinda gave me the note and the name, and I called the lady. Her name was Margaret Van Buren. And uh, we talked for a little while, and she told me what it was she wanted to do. And, and as I'm listening to her speak, I thought, man, her voice is really low. Either she, uh, she smokes a lot, or she had a cold, and, and Margaret said she had a cold. So we, uh, we talked a little bit more, and she said, man, I'm, I'm anxious about getting involved and coming and meeting you. I'm, I'm planning on being at church on Wednesday night. I said, great, we'll, we'll meet then and talk. And, and Wednesday night came, and I looked and didn't see anybody that I, I didn't, uh, didn't recognize. I thought, well, she wasn't here. I'll just connect with her later on in the week, and, and we'll talk on the phone. Remember, her name is Margaret Van Buren. Well, a few days after that, uh, I'm getting ready to leave the office. I've got some errands I've got to run. As I make my way out, uh, Nathan's really nervous, and he kind of holds me at the door. He said, you, you can't just leave just yet. And about that same time, Devin Kirchie comes walking into the building, comes into the office, and kind of stands in the middle of the office. And I didn't notice, but I, Nathan comes out of his office, Belinda gets up from the desk, and Diane comes out of her office, some other staff members come around, and, and Devin stands there looking at me and said, I said, D, I, I've just got something I've got to tell you. It's been on my heart and mind for so long, I've, I've really got to tell you this. I thought, oh, great, what's he done now? Because Devin has a list. And I thought, well, all right, I guess, I guess we'll hear this. And, um, well, the video can explain it better than I can. <clears throat> I've been thinking about this. It's even scarier. It, yeah, it is scary. And I'm just going to tell you, I, I can't lie to you anymore. I have to be completely honest with you. Oh, no, please, God. <laughs> yeah. I've been, I've been concealing something from you, and I've got to be honest. All right. It's clean. I am Margaret Van Buren. I'm going to smack you. <laughs> 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 Devin Kirchie is no longer allowed in the church office or in the building. Now, unlike Devin, Jesus Christ made one of the most phenomenal claims in all of history. In John chapter, verse, John chapter 4, we read that as Jesus is in Samaria, he stops at this well, and he's talking with a Samaritan woman. Of course, they really don't have much to do with each other, Jews and Samaritans, but he's talking with this woman, and she says, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. 
And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Two very powerful truths are found in that short statement. First of all, Jesus said, I am. We, we hear that first spoken way back in the Old Testament in Exodus when, when Moses stands before the burning bush. God is revealing his plan to him to go back into Egypt and rescue the Israelites. And, and Moses is saying, look, I'll do this, but they're not going to believe that I'm supposed to do this. Who will I tell them sent me? And God said, you tell them I am has sent you. Literally in the Hebrew, I am who I am going to be has sent you. Not only did Jesus claim to be the I am, but he also tacked on to the end of that, I am the Messiah. I am the chosen one. I am the one who's come to redeem Israel, the one to, to bring uh, peace to all mankind. And so he makes these two very powerful, tremendous claims right at the beginning of this conversation with this woman. And then in, in John chapter 17, Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. He's in the garden and he's praying, or he's a little bit before that, but he's praying. And he says, I pray that they will all be one, meaning believers, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, God coming to us in flesh, is one of the most challenging doctrine, doctrinal truths in all of Christianity. I know there's other ones like the Trinity, and that's kind of hard to, to hold on to as well. But this is, this is one of those hard ones. It's hard to wrap our head around, to imagine the creator of the universe coming to earth in a 5 foot 10, 5 foot 11 assemblage of, of flesh and bones. Now, if you, you may already be familiar with the term the incarnation. If you've grown up in the church, then you've seen that word. You've heard it before. And we know it especially because at Christmas time we celebrate the coming of Jesus, this little baby born in a manger there in Bethlehem. And the reason I like it so much because at Christmas time we sing Christmas carols, and I love Christmas carols. Everybody in the office knows that I love Christmas carols. I start listening to them in April. I have been, ask my wife. I've been listening to them since then. But if, you, if you're new to the faith, if you did not grow up in the church, then maybe that term is a little bit confusing to you. The dictionary defines the incarnation as a person who embodies in the flesh a deity or a spirit. The embodiment of God the Son in human flesh as Jesus Christ. Oh, is that all? <laughs> I mean, how hard can that be? What's the big deal? It is not too difficult for us to wrap our heads around the fact that Jesus was fully divine, that he was fully God. That, that's fairly, fairly easy to understand. But the Bible complicates the matter when it says that Jesus was not only fully God, but he was also fully man. Fully God and fully man. Boy, how do you harmonize that? How do you bring these two truths together? How do you, how do you wrap your head around that? In Hebrews chapter 2, the writer to the Hebrews said, For this reason, Jesus had to be made like us, like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. A little bit later on in that same book, chapter 4, we read, So then, since we have a great high priest who's entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Like us in every way, the writer says. Like us in every way. All the emotions, all the sensations that we experience, Jesus experienced as well. When he was hungry, he ate. When he was tired, he slept. When Excuse me, when he was hot, he sweat. When he was cold, he shivered. When he was sorrowful, he cried. When he heard a good joke, I'm sure he probably, la probably laughed. 
In all the things that we never hope to experience in this life, those things that Jesus experienced in his humanity, he did fully. He was falsely accused, and therefore he was humiliated. He was beaten, he was flogged, he, was, he was, uh, uh, had a crown of thorns placed upon his head. There were spear, or spikes put into his wrist and a spear into his side, and he felt intense pain. He died, and he was buried. You go outside and you hear a mockingbird, and it will mimic several other kind of birds, but that is still just a mockingbird. It is not all those birds. Jesus is not just simply God cloaked in humanity. He was fully human in every way, just like us. Now, you still ask the question, okay, but how can, how can Jesus be both God and man? How can he do both? I mean, after all, Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything, right? Yes, he does. Yet we read in Scripture here, back in Luke chapter 8, that when, when um, Jesus was walking through a crowd, a woman that had a, had a bleeding condition came up to him, and, and she reached out and grabbed the hem of his garment. And Jesus said, Who touched me? Because I perceive that power has gone out from me. The Bible tells us Jesus did not know that John the Baptist had died. He didn't know all things automatically, but there were things that he had to learn as he was growing up. As a child, there were things that he would learn. He would learn that, that the fire was hot and that water was cold. He would learn these things. When he was 12 years old, he stayed in Jerusalem while mom and dad were going back home. And when they came and found him, he was sitting at the feet of the scribes and the priests, and he was learning there as well. And it said at that point, he obeyed, he obeyed mom and dad the rest of his life. He was submissive to them. There were things that Jesus chose not to know. The Bible tells us that Jesus did not know the time of his returning. He chose not to know that. Okay, but Jesus is omnipotent, right? He's all-powerful. Yes, he is. But in Mark chapter 6, it tells us that Jesus went into a village, and there he was not able to heal many. Now, the Scripture tells us, and the basis of this, because of the lack of faith on those but Jesus worked through these things in his humanity. Jesus was omnipresent, correct? It means that he can be everywhere. However, when Jesus went to see Lazarus, who had been dead four days, the sister of Lazarus came to Jesus and said, if you had only been here, my brother would not be dead. He couldn't be two places at the same time. In Philippians 2, it says that God made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. Another modern author writes, in eternity past, in times past, God chose to temporarily cloak his deity, to veil it in order that his humanity could find full expression. Never less than God, Jesus chose to live his life never more than a man. Never more than a man. In other words, Jesus never once called upon his deity to do anything. His power is God to do anything here. He had to be like us in every way. If Christ had not been fully human, then he could not fully pay for our sins. He would not be the, the, the compensation for our, our misdeeds. He had to do all these things. I know what you're thinking, and I'm not a prophet. I'm not God. I'm not divine. But you're thinking, yeah, D, but what about the miracles? Yeah, what about those? Jesus performed miracles. But they were not performed so that he could prove his divinity. He did miracles so that he could, he could prove his messiahship. The Jews, the high priests, the scribes, they expected Jesus or they expected the Messiah to perform great miracles. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us the apostles performed great miracles. 
They healed the sick. They even raised some people from the dead. But it did not prove that they were divine. It just simply showed that they allowed God to work in their lives. They were open to whatever God led them to do. Jesus said, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Jesus was fully human in every way, except he did not sin. But you're thinking, then how could he be fully human? How can he understand our temptations if he could not sin? I didn't say that he couldn't sin. I said the same temptations that we face would come to the eyes, would come to the ears, would come to the mind of Jesus. Those things that we see, those things that we hear, those things that we experience, they would come to the heart and to the mind of Jesus as well. So how did he resist? I believe that Jesus was so, so focused so purposeful in what God wanted him to do that when temptations came to him, Jesus could say, no, my will is to do the will of my Father. That's my work, is to do God's will. And so even though there are things coming into my mind, into my life, into into my experience, my sphere here that would tempt me and pull me away, I am so focused on what God wants to do that I can say no. And I think that's the same thing that you and I can do today. When temptation comes to us, when we are are tempted to do something wrong, to step out of bounds, to to, uh, rebel against God, we can say, my purpose is to glorify God. My focus is to live for God. Therefore, I will not give in to temptation. It worked for Jesus. It can work for us. What the incarnation of Jesus tells us this, tells us best is that the best chance of knowing God is through the life of Jesus Christ. Now in his book, Core 52, Mark Moore suggested three ways, uh, three truths about the incarnation. And they're not only true of Jesus, but as we understand them, they also teach us how we can live like Christ as well. How we can be more responsive to the world around us. And the first thing that he showed us in the book was this. When Jesus came, he showed us that God is near. In the very beginning, God literally walked with creation in the garden. It says here in Genesis 3, When the cool evening breezes were blowing, Adam and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Can you imagine that? Before the fall, Adam and Eve walked with God. God was in the garden with them, and they would walk, and they would talk, and and they would share things because they were in a perfect existence. No sin was there. But after the rebellion, after their fall, they were separated. Oh, God remained in contact with his creation, but many times he did it it from a distance or used someone else to do this. In Genesis 27, God speaks to Jacob, but he does it through a dream. In Genesis 33, we see that uh, Jacob wrestles with what the Bible says is God and maybe some form of an angelic being, but it says it was God there. But in Exodus chapter 3, God speaks to Moses, but he does it from a burning bush. In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're in that fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in, and he sees not just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but someone that has the appearance of a son of the gods, that it says, but we, we believe that this is probably Jesus Christ there. And to those shepherds who were watching their sheep on a hillside outside of Bethlehem, an angelic host appears to them and tells them of the good news of the birth of the Messiah coming in just in that evening. Now, there are all kinds of examples in Scripture of God stepping into our reality. Many religions today do not have a concept of having a a, a God being nearby, having a, a, a close relationship. 
uh, and some of them do. Uh, pantheism, if you know anything about pantheism, it says that God and reality coexist. In other words, the deity is in everything. Kind of like the Star Wars force. The force is in you and surrounds you and makes all these things happen. That's kind of the idea of pantheism. Animism is a religion that teaches that, that uh, uh, everything in creation possesses a very distinct spiritual essence. So there's something spiritual in everything that's made. Even in Judaism, it's taught that, uh, uh, that, that God was real, God exists. They gave God a name, called him Yahweh. But there still was this reverence from afar. There was never a concept, even in Judaism, of God being near, of God being personal, God being close. You see, in Christianity, we have full access to God through his son, Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, we read, So the word became, and I, I like this translation, the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. To the, to the Hebrews, the writer said, So let us come boldly, not with arrogance, not with pride, but with confidence. Let us boldly come to the throne of our gracious God. There we receive mercy, and we find grace to help us when we need it most. And a little bit later on in Hebrews, we read, Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am there. I am near. And, and, and we can have that kind of relationship. We can have uh, that, that kind of existence where God indeed is near, especially through Jesus Christ. No other religion provides the closeness to God that Christianity does, that Jesus provides. At the crucifixion, when, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, the Bible tells us that not far away in the temple, there was a curtain that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. And this curtain wasn't just a sheet that you might find hanging up someplace. It was, it was several inches thick of woven wool and other materials, and, and, and it would be literally impossible. It would take a supernatural, yes, a supernatural strength to tear it from top to bottom, and God did that. And God, in doing so, said, now you have access to me. No longer do you need any high priest or sacrifices or any of these things. Now you can come directly to where I am. Through Jesus, you have access to the holy of holies, to the most holy place. What would happen if we made ourselves available, if we made ourselves accessible to other people? Jesus did. In Matthew chapter 19, one day some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could lay his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. And he placed his hands on their heads and he blessed them before they left. What if we really began to listen to those who were hurting and those who were frightened? What if we took the time to help the person who is struggling really to make ends meet? What if we put down our phones and we stopped texting and we started talking? Deb and I were in a restaurant down in Paducah, Kentucky. A family of four came in and sat down, two older sons and a mom and a dad. And they sat down at the table with four chairs there just across from each other. And the moment they sat down, the phones came out, they began texting. They might have been texting each other. I don't know. Probably saying, you're going to have this, no, I'm going to have this, you have that. Ridiculous that they were doing this. Husbands, put down your remotes. Turn off the TV. Enter into your wife's life. Wives, stop pressuring the husband to achieve unrealistic expectations. Let God make him into the man he wants him to be.
I, I know there are times that we all want to be unavailable. There's nothing worse than those robo-calls that come from the company saying, hey, I've got a great car insurance deal for you, or I can extend your coverage, or, or all these kind of things. I, I mean, they never come at opportune times. They come at the most inopportune time. You know what? When telephone calls come or when needs come to us, they never come at a convenient opportunity, do they? They never come and we don't have anything else to do. But like Jesus, we need to respond. There were several times when Jesus was, was, uh, had a destination, had a place to go. He had something that he was going to do. But at some moment along that journey, someone reaches out to him and says, Jesus, I need your help. And he would stop. And he would provide whatever was needed at that time. God came near in Jesus. In doing so, we would know how to make ourselves available to others. The next thing that Mark Moore points out is that when Jesus came, he showed us that God suffered. Man, there's, there's another one of those things that I have trouble wrapping my head around. I, I mean, how can God suffer? Shouldn't God be above all that? Isn't he beyond that? If he's all-powerful, could he not do something about anything that might make him feel bad or suffer or, or, or have a bad day? I mean, after all, the good guy always wins, right? The hero always wins. That, that's the way life works. I remember the first time that I saw the hero lose his life in a movie. 1972, John Wayne was in the movie The Cowboys. And man, about a third way in the movie, John Wayne dies. So that's not right. John Wayne can't die. He's the hero. Tom Hanks was in the movie Saving Private Ryan back in 1998. Tom Hanks is the hero of the movie, Captain John Miller. And right at the end of the movie, he loses his life. And that can't be right. The, the, the good guy doesn't die in the, in the movies. Isn't that right? Robert Downey Jr. is Iron Man. He loses his life in Endgame. But I think they're bringing him back. I don't know how that's going to happen, but I think they're going to bring him back. The good guy never dies. The good guy always wins, right? Not necessarily in Scripture. That's what God's Word says about Jesus. He was pierced for our rebellion and crushed for our sins. That text was especially troubling to the rabbis. They couldn't seem to get their head around the fact that the Messiah who was going to come to redeem and save Israel was going to die like this, even at their hands. And you know, it wasn't just the physical torture, but I think maybe even more so the emotional weight of sin of mankind that Jesus bore to the cross had to be just as bad, if not worse, than the torture itself. In Matthew 23, we read, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is Jesus speaking. The city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I wanted to gather your children as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And then in the garden before his crucifixion, he's speaking to his disciples and he's in prayer. And he says, my soul is crushed with grief. To the point of death, stay here and keep watch with me. And then just a little while later, it records that Jesus was praying more fervently. And he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. You see, more than anything else, Jesus wanted people to come to know him so they could see God. He wanted them to believe on him so they could see the Father. Their best chance of knowing God was to see God being lived out in Jesus' life. That's, that's what he wanted. When we struggle, when life hurts, when we're disappointed, when things do not go our way, are people able to see Jesus in us according to how we respond to those hurts in life? You may be saying, man, 
Suffering's no fun. I didn't sign up for this. I think maybe you did. When you became a believer, the Bible tells us that life will be hard, that we will have trials and tribulations. Days will be difficult. Lives will be lost. Mark Moore in the book on page 218 said, Our greatest growth comes from our suffering, not from our success. Listen to that. Our greatest growth comes from our suffering, not from our successes. Faye Bledsoe was a member of our congregation down in Anna. I had her funeral last Saturday. She was a dear, dear sweet lady, a hard servant, a lover of God. She was a lady that grew up knowing what poverty was all about. Their kitchen was on the dirt floor in the basement. There was no AC, sometimes no heat. Never any Christmas presents, never any birthday presents. No new clothes, no new shoes. They only had what they would be given or what maybe mom could sew for them. And today, a lot of people that grow up in those situations will grow up hard and bitter and angry because of of what happened to them in those early years. And Faye did not. She grew up independent and generous and a lover of God. She wrote in her diary, the one thing that I regret the most was the fact that I did not start going to church until later in life. And that meant for her 18 years of old, 18 years of age when she was married. How many of you have ever seen the show Forged in Fire? I love this show on History Channel. A blacksmith is given some type of metal. We don't know what kind it is, but they tell us what it is. And he takes that piece of metal and he wells a rod into it. Then he puts it into a forge and it sets in the forge until it becomes white hot. And then the blacksmith withdraws that piece of steel out of the forge. And then through the brutal use of a hammer or a power hammer, that steel is relentlessly pounded and it's pounded and it's it's unyielding. It won't move. It stays that shape. But after a while with more heat and more work and more pounding, that steel begins to become malleable and it begins to move. And, And all of a sudden then you see this blacksmith is starting to form a knife, a sword, an axe or something he's making with that steel. And he keeps working until that steel begins to look and become what it is he's wanting. But he's not done because now he takes that piece of steel that's molded and shaped into what he wants and he puts it back in the fire. And it goes back into the heat. And it turns white hot one more time. And he takes it out and he dips it into the oil. When it hits the oil, the flames come up and it's cooled. And when it's brought out of the flames, he takes a file to rub it across the metal to see if it is hard. And that fire and that oil has tempered that steel and now it will hold an edge. And it's exactly what the blacksmith wants it to be. Many of you have have gone through the fire. Many of you are going through the fire. Maybe the death of a loved one, terminal disease, the heartbreak of a broken relationship, a a financial loss, a job, a job loss. And apart from these things, without faith, they can break you. They can destroy you. But when you put yourself in the hands of God and he takes you through that fire, whatever that fire may be, And in faith, you let him be in control. And then he dips you in that water and you are tempered and you are steeled and you are strong. We can face anything and you will not break. When those outside of faith and even those inside of faith see what God does during your darkest moments, they're moved, they're taught, they're encouraged, and they see that Jesus lives in you. And as God suffered and we suffer, we become a testimony to the power of God in our life. 
when Jesus came, he showed that God loves us sacrificially. In most religions, God is somewhat distant. The idea of having a loving relationship with a personal God is, is kind of vague, kind of foreign to most religions. But Christianity, Christianity teaches not only that God loves us, those who are saved, but God loves his enemies as well. And that is completely foreign to most other belief systems. In Romans 5, 8, we read, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still in our rebellion, while we were still sinners. And it wasn't for just those who said yes to Jesus that Jesus came and died. It was also for those who crucified him, for those who said no to him. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. Consider the impact upon our community, our county, our state, our nation, our world. If we truly loved one another unconditionally and sacrificially. How would that affect our homes? Marriages break up because one or the other or both partners have forgotten how to love sacrificially. Friendships falter because they have stopped loving sacrificially. Church doors close because that church has stopped loving unconditionally and sacrificially. Mark Moore says on page 218 of his book, in practical terms, that means listening more than talking, tithing rather than hoarding, volunteering rather than self-indulging, bragging about others rather than self-promoting. And he says, oddly in the end, sacrifice turns into gain. Sacrifice turns into gain. An eight-year-old boy had a six-year-old sister who was dying of leukemia. He was told that without a blood transfusion, she would probably die. The parents explained to him that his blood might be compatible. It, it might be compatible with hers. And if so, he could be a blood donor. So they asked the little eight-year-old boy, can we go to the hospital and draw some blood and do a test? He said, sure. So they go and draw the blood and find out it's a perfect match. And so they say, if you're willing to donate blood to her, your sister will live. Can we do that? He said, let me think about it. <laughs> the next morning he wakes up and goes to mom and dad and he said, I'm willing. They go to the hospital, and there the little eight-year-old boys lying on a gurney by his six-year-old sister, and needles are inserted in their arms, IVs are placed, and a pint of blood is taken from the eight-year-old. It's transferred to the six-year-old, put in the IV, and drains life-saving blood into her body. The little boy's lying on the gurney, his eyes closed. The doctor comes over just to check on the little boy and ask him if he's doing all right. The little boy says, how soon until I start to die? You see, he thought that the donating blood meant that he was going to lose his life. He understood. He thought that all of his blood out of his body was going to be taken out and given to his sister. And he was willing to do that. He was willing to love unconditionally. He was willing to live sacrificially. He was willing to give everything so that his little sister could live. C.S. Lewis thought that we should give financially to the point that it means going without some comforts and luxuries. He said, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. There ought to be things that we should like to do and cannot do because our charity's expenditure excludes them. How amazing and timely that in just a few moments you're going to hear how we can 
unconditionally and sacrificially love people that we don't even know, people that we will probably never, ever see this side of heaven. And God is giving us an opportunity to love just that way. So the Word became human, just like us. And He made His home among us. And He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we've seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Oh, I like that term. Jesus became human. Jesus became just like us so that we could see God, so that we could see the Father. And in Jesus, we know that God is near. We know that God suffers, and we know that God loves us unconditionally. He loves us sacrificially. And because that's true, we can be an example of how we're supposed to live as well. By making ourselves available to a world that is scrambling and looking for hope in hopeless days. By showing that when we suffer, there's still hope. And we have a God who is near. And we can show the presence of God in life when we begin to love the unlovely and we love unconditionally and we love sacrificially. God came into this world for you. This morning, there's an opportunity given to you by God himself. Not this church, not the leadership, but God gives that opportunity to you to come and to receive whatever it is you need at this time. Maybe here on the steps, you'd love to come and pray. And leaders will come and pray with you if you want. Maybe as a mercy believer, you'd like to partner with what's going on at First Christian Church and be a part of the ministry here. We would love to have you come. But the most important decision that would be made today is the one that says, I don't know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I want to know the incarnate Christ, the one who came in the flesh, who died for me, who was raised again, so that my faith and belief in him and his grace bestowed upon me would provide for eternity. Maybe that's the decision that you need to make. If it is, you're invited right now to come and accept that free grace. Would you stand, please? Heavenly Father, as we consider a difficult teaching, Father, help us realize that so much of what we, how we respond to these things has to be by faith. Father, I can't describe how you could be fully, fully divine and fully human, how those two things could coexist. But because you are all-powerful, they can. Father, I can't understand the concept of the Trinity, three in one. But because you're all-powerful, it can't exist. And Father, why you, would, why you would choose to save us? Because you have unconditional love. And we accept that by faith. Father, extend to us that grace and faith this morning. Provide for the salvation of those seeking. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.